This is Brother Michael A. Smith, a voice for Freemasonry, bringing to you the Short Talk Bulletin, published by the Masonic Service Association of North America every month since 1923. This, the Short Talk Bulletin podcast, is produced in cooperation with the MSA and is made possible with the generous support of a grant from the Grand Lodge AFNAM of Minnesota. This is Worshipful Brother Wes Latchford, Worshipful Master of Atlantic Lodge No. 2 in Norfolk, Virginia, and District Educational Officer for the 35th Masonic District of the Grand Lodge of Virginia, bringing to you Volume 51, No. 2, from February 1973, What Masonry Means to Me. Written by illustrious brother Dr. Norman Vincent Peale. With Dr. Peel's gracious permission, we are proud to present it as an inspiring short talk. I would like to talk to you for the next two hours and a quarter on a subject which I feel is very important, what masonry means to me. One of the greatest and most fortunate experiences in my life was when as a young man I applied to Midwood Lodge number 1062 in Brooklyn and finally came to that great night when I was raised and made a Mason. Outside my relationship to the Church of Almighty God, this is the most valued fellowship of my entire experience. I can think of no greater thing that can happen in the life of any man than to have the experience in his young manhood and across the years of being a member of this great fellowship and of learning to know, in the intimacies of brotherhood, some of the greatest men he will ever meet. Masonry has meant many things to me. I was thinking about them in the last few days, knowing I would be here, and one of them is this, that being a member of a Masonic Lodge helps a man in dealing with one of the peskiest things he will ever have to face, namely, the problems of life. We solve our problems in fellowship, maybe not specifically, but the strength we receive from other strong people. Everywhere I go, people are complaining to me about their problems. In fact, I rather get the notion that many people think life would be simply wonderful if either they had fewer problems, or easier problems, or better still, no problems whatsoever. The general consensus of opinion is that a problem is inherently a bad thing, which is an error, for a problem may, on the contrary, be a very good thing. But would you be better off if you had fewer problems, or easier problems, or no problems at all? I would like to answer my own question by telling you of an incident. I was walking down Fifth Avenue in New York City not long ago, when I saw approaching me a friend of mine, a fellow Mason by the name of George. It was evident from George's disconsolate demeanor that he wasn't filled to overflowing with the ecstasy and exuberance of human existence, which is a high-class way of saying that George was dragging bottom. He was really low. Well, this excited my natural sympathy, so I asked him, How are you, George? But when you get right down to it, that was nothing but a routine inquiry. But it represented an enormous mistake on my part, for George took me seriously. And for 15 minutes, he enlightened me meticulously on how badly he felt. The more he talked, the worse I felt. So finally, I said, 
Well, George, what seems to be the difficulty? What's bothering you? This really set him off. Oh, he said, it's these problems. Problems. Nothing but problems. I'm fed up with problems. He got so exercised about the matter that he quite forgot whom he was talking to. He began to castigate his problems vitrolically, using in the process thereof, I am sad to relate, a great many theological terms, though he didn't put them together in a theological manner, that's for sure. But I knew what he meant all right, for he had what the super-erudite call the power to communicate. So I said, George, you'd like to get rid of these problems, wouldn't you? And he said, yes, more than anything else. Well, I said, I think I can accommodate you and help, although I don't know whether you will like the solution. I said, George, the other day I was up in the northern part of New York City, in the Bronx, on a professional business, if I may thus characterize it. I was in an area up there where the head man told me that by actual count, there were 150,000 people, and not a single one of them had a problem. The first enthusiasm I saw in George suffused his countenance and lightened up his eyes, as he said rather familiarly, Boy, that's for me. Lead me to this place. I said, Okay, you asked for it. It's Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. And this is a fact. Nobody in Woodlawn has a problem. For them, life's fitful fever is over. They rest from their labors. They couldn't care less what you and I will see on television tonight or read in tomorrow morning's newspaper. They have no problems. But they are dead. It therefore follows, I believe, in logical sequence that problems constitute a sign of life. Indeed, I would go so far as to say that the more problems you have, the more alive you are. The man who has, let us say, ten good old, tough, man-sized problems is twice as alive as the poor, miserable, apathetic character who has only five problems. And if you are here tonight and have no problems at all, I warn you, you are in great jeopardy. What you had better do the minute this meeting is over is to head home, go to your room, get down on your knees, and pray to the Lord and say, Lord, please, what's the matter? Don't you trust me anymore? Give me some problems. Now, it's my humble opinion that in order to be mentally healthy, you've got to have a good substantial philosophy of problems. And this is what masonry has helped many a man to do. He comes into a lodge, burdened down with the problems of every day. And there, in the mystic atmosphere of fellowship and brotherhood, he finds strength. And not only strength, but wisdom, because he is under the influence of the great light in masonry, which teaches him that problems are for the creation of great human beings. Down in New York City, I have 15 psychiatrists on the staff of my church. But please don't get any false notion about my congregation by reason of this. You might wonder, and the answer is, we try to deal with people scientifically. We don't heal them with psychiatry. We heal them with the good old gospel of the Lord Jesus and of God. However, the psychiatrists are helpful. 
Now, I don't know whether there's any psychiatrist in this meeting tonight or not. There might be. But if there should be one here, he'll not be hurt by anything I say, for I esteem him highly as a scientist. And having been closely associated with these psychiatrists for a quarter of a century, I even have affection for him as a colleague. But having made these fallacious remarks, I will admit to you, in the intimacy of the little family circle here assembled, that having been closely associated with these psychiatrists all these years, they sure are a queer crowd. But if one of them had the floor in my stead, he might with equal authenticity make a not dissimilar comment about my profession, that's for sure. Reminds me of something that happened in New York City not long ago. The American Association of Psychiatrists held a four-day convention at a hotel opposite the Pennsylvania Railroad Station. The lobby of the hotel thronged with psychiatrists, full of psychiatrists. Across the street from the hotel is the station, around which, from time immemorial, there have been huge flocks of pigeons. As far as anybody is able to ascertain, these are well-organized, emotionally stable, well-integrated pigeons going about their daily life of being a pigeon. But apparently the emotional instability of the multitude thronging in and out of the station transmitted itself to one of these pigeons, and the pigeon got off the beam. By a process that has never been fully accounted for, this pigeon presently found itself in the lobby of the Hotel Statler, flying around amongst these psychiatrists. In fact, it is reliably reported that this pigeon flew around amongst these psychiatrists for two whole days before any psychiatrist would admit to another that he saw a pigeon flying around the lobby of the hotel. Now, in the clinic we have at church, we have every known human problem. You name them, we've got them. There's worry, and anxiety, and fear, and marital problems, and drug problems, and alcohol problems, and resentment problems, and prejudice problems. Every old kind of a problem. But what would you think is the chief problem? In a religious, psychiatrically oriented clinic, which has operated in the heart of New York City over 25 years, in which 50% of the caseload represents men between the ages of 25 and 45, the chief problem among these highly educated men is a deep, inner haunting, inferior feeling that they haven't got quite what it takes to cope with the ordinary problem of human existence. I asked one of our psychiatrists one day what he thought was the cure of that terrible malady. Well, he said, I can tell you the medicine. You can't buy it in a drugstore, nor can you have it injected into your arm, into the bloodstream. The cure is the thought that is injected into consciousness. He said there is a passage in the Bible which, if you will drop it in the conscious mind and hold it there until by a process of spiritual osmosis it sinks into the unconscious, it will give any human being a feeling of mystery and power over any problem he will ever have to face in his life. Naturally, I wondered what this marvelous passage was that the psychiatrist had in mind. My father, down in Ohio churches, used to preach on this text years ago. 
As a little boy, I can remember sitting down in the pew hearing him, strong man that he was, talk a man-sized gospel. And the text the doctor referred to was one of my father's favorites. Act like men, be strong. Any man who is afflicted with a sense of defeat in the problems of life would find within the confines of masonry that faith, character, and ruggedness of spirit which would help him to act like a man and be strong. That's what masonry means to me. Then there's another thing that's not unakin to it. We are living in one of the tensest generations that we have ever had in the land of the free and the home of the brave. I get letters all the time from people who say to me, I am so nervous I could leap out of my skin. And I have visions of people all over the country leaping out of their skins. Now, you know, we don't go in much in this country for patron saints, but believe me, we've got one just the same. The patron saint of the Irish is St. Patrick. The patron saint of the English is St. George. Who would you think is the patron saint of modern Americans? Well, I nominate good old St. Vitus. We are a nervous, high-strung generation of people. I was speaking to a national drug convention not long ago, and they gave me some statistics. They said that every year in this country there are sold 12 million pounds of aspirin, and somebody had figured out that in this country there are annually 7.5 billion headaches. So I got a pencil and paper and figured that out. And that checks out to 50 headaches per person per annum. Have you had your quota yet this year? But that isn't really the worst of it. Every night in the United States, this very night, it will require 13 million doses of sleeping pills to put the American people to sleep. Now, you would think, wouldn't you, if you couldn't do anything else, that after a hard day's work, you could lie down and go to sleep. But I can testify to you that so keyed up is the average American today that it's almost impossible even to put him to sleep with a sermon anymore, and that's a sad situation. But the fellowship with Masons has helped to reduce my tensions. I don't believe I have ever met a man in a Masonic gathering who was tense. He might have been tense before he came in, and maybe he will be when he gets home, but while there, he is not tense, because there is the spirit of fraternalism and camaraderie, and he loses his tension and becomes relaxed. Now, isn't it wonderful that tonight we don't have to listen to any political speeches? They get everybody so keyed up. Last night I sat up and listened to the returns in Canada, but I got them only partially. Of course, I thought we did all right in New York State, but this is not a political gathering. Excuse me, please. But I got so tense that my wife finally told me we had better go to bed and forget it, that the country would survive no matter what happened. This laborious excursion is to tell you a story about Calvin Coolidge. You remember him. He never worried too much about anything. He was about the most unexcitable politician I ever listened to in my life. I long for him. Well, when Coolidge was a young practicing attorney in Northampton, 
He used to walk to work every day. He wouldn't think of driving there and spending the money. Every morning, he walked along the same route and passed the home of a friend named Hiram, who was always leaning over the fence. Coolidge said to him, Hi, Hiram. And Hiram said, Hi, Cal. Cal said, Nice morning. Hiram said, Nice morning. This conversation went on for 20 years. Then Coolidge got into politics. He ran for the legislature. He was lieutenant governor. He was governor of Massachusetts. He was the vice president of the United States and president of the United States. So he was away from Northampton for a long time. When he got through with the presidency and all that, he went back to Northampton to practice law again. The first morning when he went down to business, he followed the same old route. As he came along, sure enough, there was Hiram leaning over the fence, and he said, Hi, Hiram. Hiram said, Hi, Cal. Cal said, Nice day. Hiram said, Nice day. And then the heavens fell, because Hiram, taciturn New Englander, added an extra sentence. He said, Ain't seen you around lately, Cal. Cal said, Nah, been away for a spell. That's the kind of relaxed tension we need. You get into a Masonic body and you find it. And if you are stirred up, tense, and full of stress, how wonderful it is to gather with a group of like-minded, high-minded, marvelous men who are doing all these wonderful things that were recited here tonight for the sightless, for the crippled, for the needy, and others. So masonry means to me a feeling of peace and quietness in my mind. And I feel it here in this great hall tonight with all of you. Finally, and this is perhaps the greatest thing of all, Masons really stand for something. They believe in some great things. They have convictions. They believe in God, their creator of the universe. They believe in the Bible, which is the rule and practice of a good life. They believe in their country, in justice, and in freedom. They have a standard of values, the same standard of values that as a boy years ago in the Buckeye State, I was taught not only in the home, but in the school as being a part of a good citizen and a religious man. And never was the Masonic fraternity more greatly needed than today because we live in a period of permissiveness and compromise and dilution of the great principles upon which this country must survive. Masons have this faith, and they are not afraid to witness to it. Sadly enough, so many of us are. I was appointed some time ago by the President of the United States as a member of a commission to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the United Nations, and the purpose of the commission is also to prepare for the president a report suggesting to him what our national policy should be toward this great organization in the future years. Early in the life of the commission, the president invited us to dinner in the White House at a state dinner in the state dining room. It was a glorious occasion. All the gold plate was brought out. They had uniformed waiters in resplendent regalia. They had strolling musicians that played sweet music. The composition of the company, with one glaring exception, was very distinguished. 
both public officials in the area of international affairs and private citizens. One of the members was the editor of one of your great papers here in Cleveland. During the course of the dinner, tribute was paid to the Secretary General of the United States, Mr. Yu That, who was sitting at the right of the President. Speakers brought one ecumen after another upon this little man from across the seas, whom they described as never losing his cool. This man, who under all manner of provocation, never became angry. This man who had a great grasp of international affairs. It was really a tremendous tribute that was paid to you that. I was interested in what he might say when he arose to acknowledge these tributes. Now remember the setting, the state dining room of the White House with a distinguished company of people. Thant said, If I am worthy of all these things that were said about me, it is because I am a Buddhist. I was born in a conservative Buddhist family of honorable parents who taught me the precepts and principles of Buddhism. I have conditioned my life on the teachings of Buddha, whom I consider to be the greatest religious leader who ever lived. Daily, morning and evening, I commune with Buddha and I dedicate my life to him. When he was seated, I looked around the company. I judged them to be probably 95% Christians and 5% Jewish, representatives of the two great religions of this country, and I asked myself if any one of them, including the speaker myself, under similar circumstances would have the guts to stand and say, if I am any of these things, it is because I am a believer in God. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I was born in a conservative Christian or Jewish home of honorable parents who taught me the precepts and principles of Christianity or Judaism, and to these I have ever been faithful. Twice every day I have communed with God. I consider Jesus Christ the greatest religious figure who ever lived. Would we have what it takes to bear this testimony? I hope that while it might not be done always in words, it is done by dedication and spirit by the men who across the years have been privileged to be members of the greatest fraternal order of all time. They believe in something and they articulate their faith. Therefore, most worshipful Grand Master, I salute you and all the brethren, and may our dedication be deeper and profounder than ever before. This is what masonry means to me, and to you too. God bless you, everyone. This is Brother Michael A. Smith, a voice for Freemasonry. And this has been the Short Talk Bulletin Podcast, produced in cooperation with the Masonic Service Association of North America, for the purpose of providing a common stock of vetted Masonic information to all of the constituent lodges of all of the member jurisdictions, and is made possible through a generous grant from the Grand Lodge AFNAM of Minnesota, who have been engaging and inspiring good men who believe in a supreme being to live according to the Masonic tenets of brotherly love, relief, and truth since 1853.